History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 358th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we have a haunted true crime. And it's a big one. We're going to be talking about the ghosts of Whitechapel. So, of course, we're going to be talking about Jack the Ripper. Excellent. So there's a lot of spirits left behind in his wake, but there's also some other hauntings going on there that we're going to share with you as well. Being that this is a haunted true crime and it is about Jack the Ripper, just a warning for some of you parents who listen with your younger ones, this is definitely not a show for them. And for those of you who don't like to hear some of the details about crime, you probably would like to skip this one as well. Before we get into sharing that with you, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Krissa with a CH, Cody, Amy, Victoria, Billy with an IE, Stephanie with an IE, Jennifer, Elise with a Y, Haley with an EY, Loretta, and Shea. Welcome to the crew, everybody. And now, this moment, Noddity. When Diane was a kid, her family grew pumpkins in their little backyard garden. For several of those years, they managed to grow at least one really large pumpkin. Diane's dad would carve out the pumpkin and the elementary school would display it at the front counter area. They would then bring it home for Halloween to grace the front porch. The largest pumpkin was big enough for four kids to sit on top comfortably. We are all aware that giant pumpkin growing contests are held at this time of year, and the winner for 2020 was the Great Pumpkin Indeed. Travis Geinger is a horticulture teacher who lives in Anoka, Minnesota, which also just happens to officially be the Halloween capital and he grew the winning pumpkin. He drove his giant pumpkin 35 hours to California for its official weigh-in. The pumpkin tipped the scales at a whopping 2,350 pounds. That means this pumpkin weighed more than a Volkswagen bug. This also earned him a prize of $16,450. That's a lot of pumpkin pie filling, and that huge pumpkin certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, This Month in History. In the month of October on the 31st in 1963, a propane gas explosion at the Indiana State Fairgrounds Coliseum killed 74 people and injured 400. The fairgrounds was hosting a holiday on ice skating exhibition inside the building and the skaters were just finishing up their final piece in the show and the group was gliding into a pinwheel formation. 
Suddenly, some propane gas that had been leaking from a rusty tank in the concession area ignited, and the explosion it created shot a ball of fire up through the south side seats. People in chairs went flying. A huge crater had been blown in the ground, and many people fell into it and were buried by concrete. 54 people were killed on the scene, and another 20 died later. Indianapolis Star reporter Richard R. Roberts wrote of the event, You walked into a nightmare. This was the worst thing I've seen since combat in World War II. The lights above still cast a bluish light onto the ice show. A red satin slipper lay on the ice. Three feet away was a pool of blood. A gray-haired man lay on his back, staring lifelessly at the ceiling. Ambulance attendants threw a gray blanket across him. Chairs were scattered like ten pins on the south end of the big building. The fairgrounds itself was almost like a battleground. Several people were indicted by a grand jury. The state fire marshal, the Indianapolis fire chief, the general manager, and the concessions manager of the Coliseum, and officers of the propane gas company. Only the president of the gas supplier was convicted, which was later overturned by the Indiana Supreme Court. Victims and survivors got $4.6 million in settlements. Jack the Ripper. That name can cause one's blood to run cold. No serial killer is as famous as Jack the Ripper. He was birthed during a time long before the term serial killer was devised by the FBI. His crimes were horrific and remain unsolved to this day. Since these multiple murders happened 130 years ago, Jack the Ripper is considered one of the first serial killers in documented history. Although students of history know that serialized killing has been with us since man first discovered he could take a life. This killer was unique in that he seemed to be the first who reveled in provoking the police. The area where these crimes were committed, Whitechapel, would hold onto its infamous reputation. On this episode, we will examine the crimes, talk about the victims, theorize on who the killer may have been, and share the hauntings that have plagued Whitechapel ever since. Many people may not know that there are possibly 11 victims that could be attributed to Jack the Ripper. That's why the term canonical is used when referencing the five victims that historians and detectives have always connected with confidence to Jack the Ripper. These crimes took place in Whitechapel, London in 1888. The five victims were Mary Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly. Most of them were murdered in a 31-day time frame that abruptly ended. No one knows for sure why there was an abrupt end. Did the killer die? Was this just a sudden killing spree that he got out of a system? Did he leave the area? Was he arrested for some other crime? Let's first look at the area where the crimes were committed. The Whitechapel of late 19th century London was overcrowded and dirty. Living and working conditions were deplorable, and the sanitary conditions were terrible. Single gas lamps guttered along the maze of streets and alleyways, offering very little light. The smell of animal and human excrement hung heavy in the air. It just sounds lovely. (laughs) I know. And you just imagine all these people just throwing it all out Uh, onto the street. Around 15,000 people were homeless and unemployed. And for those that could get housing, they usually shared it with another family to make ends meet. 
Single people would be crammed into large rooms with around 80 other people and pay four pence for a bed for the night. Death for children was common, and only around half the children in Whitechapel would live to see the age of five. Prostitution was often the only choice for women, and during the Victorian period, around 1,200 prostitutes were working in Whitechapel. Typically, these women were bloated, sick, and missing teeth because they were alcoholics, and they looked far older than their real age. Many would be attacked by their clients, and rarely did the police pay attention to these complaints. So when the Ripper started his attacks, the police were not really concerned. Martha Tambrum also went by the name Martha Turner, and there are those who believe she could have been the Ripper's first victim. She was born Martha White in 1849 and married a man named Henry Tabram in 1869. This marriage would be very troubled as Martha was an alcoholic. The couple had two children before Henry finally left in 1875. Martha eventually took up with another Henry. His last name was Turner, and she would take his name, although they never married. Her drinking would end this relationship as well, and she found herself in need of income. There were not many options, and eventually she was selling her body on the streets of Whitechapel. This is what she was doing in the early morning hours of August 7th in 1888. She and a client that she had met in a bar where she was drinking with another prostitute walked to George Yard. The body of Martha Tambrum was found in George Yard around 3.30 a.m. by a cab driver. He left her on a landing where he assumed she had passed out drunk, so the authorities were not notified until 5 a.m. when a resident of the building realized she was dead. Now, I don't know... Why he would think she was passed out drunk, maybe he didn't get a really good look? I would hope that that was the case because, I mean, it's kind of crazy that he didn't realize. Yeah, because Martha had been stabbed 39 times. Yeah, you think there'd be a little bit of a sign of that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would think there'd be a pretty large pool of blood around her. At least you'd notice some kind of liquid around her. Nine of the stabs were to her throat. Two in the right lung, five in the left lung, five in the liver, two in the spleen, one in the heart, and six in the stomach. So this was definitely somebody who was violent and angry. Historians do not consider her a ripper victim because her throat was not slit and she was not disemboweled. But the killing was frenzied, which might be something a first-time serial killer would do until he'd refined his method of attack. She was killed in a very violent way with a knife in a secluded area and on a day that was near a holiday, which was the same as the five main canonical victims. So her being a victim is very possible. She's never lumped in with them. But, I mean, if you're going out for your first time try, this might be something that you do. And then you're like, hmm, maybe I want to switch things up. We do know that serial killers do sometimes change up their M.O.s and things. This is true. The first canonical victim is Mary Nichols. She lived a rough life, as so many women did in Victorian Whitechapel. And much of it was her own making. She had married William Nichols in 1864, and they had five children. She left William and the children in 1881, mainly because she was an alcoholic. He continued to support her until he heard the news she was working as a prostitute, which meant he no longer was responsible for supporting her. Mary worked some odd jobs and was placed in a workhouse and finally ended up as a maid in Wandsworth. She left that job after stealing clothes from her employer and lived in a common lodging house with another woman in 1888. On the night of August 30th, Nichols was in need of money to obtain a bed, and so she went out on the corner of Osborne Street and Whitechapel Road wearing a new bonnet, as one would do to attract men. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I mean, okay. Like I'm not as dirty as everybody else around me. I've got a new bonnet on. <laughs> her roommate met up with her an hour before her death and asked if Nichols had made any money. She replied that she had made enough for the bed three times over, and when her roommate asked to see the money, Nichols remarked that she had spent it on drink. This Ooh, was great. Yeah. <laughs> I made enough I for mean, our room was... and board, but, you know, I just drank it away. Oops. Yeah. What was the point? This was the last time Nichols was seen alive. 
A car man named Charles Allen Cross found Nichols' body on the ground in front of a gated stable on Bucks Row, which is today Durward Street, at 3.40 a.m. Cross asked another man for his opinion on whether Nichols was dead, and this man was unsure. They went looking for a policeman and found P.C. Jonas Meason. Cross told him, She looks to me to be either dead or drunk, but for my part, I believe she's dead. Meason inspected the body, and another policeman named John Neal joined him. He flashed his lantern to get another policeman to join them, and this was John Thang. The policeman questioned people in the area, but nobody had heard or seen a thing. P.C. Thane got surgeon Dr. Henry Llewellyn to come to the scene, and he found that Mary had been stabbed multiple times. Her throat had been slit twice from left to right, and her abdomen had been mutilated with several incisions and one deep jagged wound. There was little blood, only about enough to fill two large wine glasses or half a pint at the most. I always find that to be very strange, because, I mean, if you slit somebody's throat, usually when they bleed out, there's a lot of blood. And that makes me think when somebody is killed in this fashion, I wonder if he moved her. No, asphyxiated them first. Once the heart stops beating, you don't have a lot of blood Oh, that yeah. pumps out. So if she was killed by all the, the stabbings and cuttings, there still should be a lot of blood out unless he stabbed her directly in the heart and then did the rest. Very good point. The abdominal wounds took about five minutes to perform and were made by the murderer after she was dead. The attack was brutal and savage, but quick and quiet. The police decided they needed a man with a knowledge of the area to come in and help, and that man was Inspector Frederick George Aberline. Aberline had spent 14 years as a detective in the district where the Ripper crimes occurred. He was a well-respected man and suited to the work. And there you have your point, basically, Kelly, that definitely the abdominal stuff was after she was dead, but possibly the neck thing was that too. If you slit somebody's throat, I don't know that you could tell that they've been asphyxiated in some way and i don't know would have they known back then to look for um what's that bruising oh the hyloid yeah i don't know that they would have looked for that annie chapman was a second conical victim she was born eliza ann smith in 1841 and married john chapman in 1869 they had three children their youngest was named john also and he was born disabled in 1880 They lost their eldest daughter in 1882, and both of these things are thought to have led the couple to drinking and eventually separating in 1884. Chapman moved in with another man, but John continued to support her until he died from alcoholism. When the man she lived with left her soon after, she became very depressed and people started calling her Dark Annie. She sold flowers and did crochet work, but it was never enough and she soon was prostituting herself on the streets of Whitechapel. Annie found herself in the same predicament as Nichols in the early morning hours of September 8th in 1888. She needed money for lodging and decided to turn some tricks. Her body was discovered at 6 a.m. by a resident of number 29 named John Davis. She was on the ground near the doorway in the backyard. A witness named Mrs. Elizabeth Long testified at an inquest that she had seen Chapman talking to a man at about 5.30 a.m. just beyond the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. The woman may have seen Chapman's murderer and she described him as over 40, a little taller than Chapman, dark-haired, a foreign and shabby appearance that entailed him wearing a deerstalker hat and dark overcoat. Dr. George Baxter Phillips was the police surgeon, and he described how he found the body. Quote, The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. So definitely she sounds like she was positioned in some kind of graphic way. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top and bottom, and very fine teeth they were. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. 
He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply, that the incision through the skins were jagged and reached right around the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the next, smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. These were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. The instrument used at the throat and abdomen was the same. It must have been a very sharp knife with a thin, narrow blade and must have been at least six to eight inches in length, probably longer. He should say that the injuries could not have been inflicted by a bayonet or a sword bayonet. They could have been done by such an instrument as a medical man used for postmortem purposes, but the ordinary surgical cases might not contain such an instrument. Those used by the slaughtermen well ground down might have caused them, which makes people wonder if he wasn't somebody who worked in a slaughterhouse. He thought the knives used by those in the leather trade would not be long enough in the blade. There were indications of anatomical knowledge. He should say that the deceased had been dead at least two hours and probably more when he first saw her, but it was right to mention that it was a fairly cool morning and that the body would be more apt to cool rapidly from its having lost a great quantity of blood. There was no evidence of a struggle having taken place. He was positive the deceased entered the yard alive. A handkerchief was round the throat of the deceased when he saw it early in the morning. He should say it was not tied on after the throat was cut, end quote. Chapman's throat was cut from left to right, and she'd been disemboweled with her intestines thrown out of her abdomen over each of her shoulders. The morgue examination revealed that part of her uterus was missing. Her murder was quickly linked to Nichols. Elizabeth Stride went by the nickname Long Liz. She was different than the other victims in that she had got into prostitution early in her life, not because of a failed marriage and the resulting poverty. She had been born in Sweden in 1843. She eventually married a man named John Thomas Stride and stopped working as a prostitute, but they were separated eight years after marrying. She ended up in a lodging house for a time and then moved in with another man. They had a tempestuous relationship, and she had broken up with him for a final time, four days before her death. Her body was found at 1 a.m. on September 30, 1888. She was wearing a black jacket and skirt and black crepe bonnet. A policeman had seen her with a man wearing a hard felt hat who was carrying a package about 18 inches in length. The murder had happened so close to her discovery by Louis Deem Schutz that blood still flowed from a wound on her neck. Stride only had a slit throat and no mutilations, so people believe that the ripper was interrupted while he was murdering Stride. It is believed he grabbed her from behind by a handkerchief around her neck and that he pinned her to the ground on her back with his knees as he quickly slashed across her throat. Since Jack the Ripper was interrupted before he could finish his work with Stride, he went out and found himself another victim. This would be Catherine Eddowes. She was born in 1842 and had two common-law husbands. She had three children, with the first one named Thomas Conway. She was an alcoholic and left the family in 1880 and took up with John Kelly. She started casual prostitution to help pay the bills. Friends say she was a jolly woman who loved to sing, but she had a fierce temper. On the night of her death, she'd been arrested for public intoxication. She was sober enough to be released by 1 a.m. And too bad that they released her. I wish they would have just let her continue to sleep it off all night. Might have saved her life. She was found dead in Mitre Square at 1.45 a.m. by P.C. Edward Watkins. Police surgeon Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown wrote of the scene, quote, The body was on its back, the head turned to the left shoulder, the arms by the side of the body as if they had fallen there, both palms upwards, the fingers slightly bent. A thimble was lying off the finger on the right side. It's a weird extra little thing there. Yeah. Why would she have a thimble? Yeah. The clothes drawn up above the abdomen. The thighs were naked. Left leg extended in a line with the body. The abdomen was exposed. Right leg bent at the thigh and knee. The bonnet was at the back of the head. Great disfigurement of the face. The throat cut. Across below the throat was a neckerchief. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. 
They were smeared over with some feculent matter. A piece of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm, apparently by design. I don't know what in the world that has to do with anything. That's so weird. The lobe and auricle of the right ear were cut obliquely through. There was a quantity of clotted blood on the pavement on the left side of the neck, round the shoulder and upper part of the arm, and fluid blood-colored serum, which had flowed under the neck to the right shoulder, the pavement sloping in that direction. Body was quite warm. No death stiffening had taken place. She must have been dead most likely within the half hour. We looked for superficial bruises and saw none. No blood on the skin of the abdomen or secretion of any kind on the thighs. No spurting of blood on the bricks or pavement around. No marks of blood below the middle of the body. Several buttons were found in the clotted blood after the body was removed. There was no blood on the front of the clothes. There were no traces of recent connection. What's interesting about both of these is the one says that he probably was interrupted and that's why he didn't mutilate the body yet. And then she was still warm when they got to her, which makes you go, how were there no witnesses that heard screaming or something going right. on? I mean, I know he slashed him really quickly and everything happened quickly, but you still would think there'd be better witness testimonies about this stuff. After a postmortem, he wrote, after washing the left hand carefully, a bruise the size of a sixpence, recent and red, was discovered on the back of the left hand between the thumb and first finger. A few small bruises on right shin of older date. The hands and arms were bronzed. No bruises on the scalp, the back of the body, or the elbows. The cause of death was hemorrhage from the left common carotid artery. The death was immediate, and the mutilations were inflicted after death. There would not be much blood on the murderer. The cut was made by someone on the right side of the body, kneeling below the middle of the body. The peritoneal lining was cut through on the left side, and the left kidney carefully taken out and removed. I believe the perpetrator of the act must have had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. The parts removed would be of no use for any professional purpose. It required a great deal of knowledge to have removed the kidney and to know where it was placed. Such a knowledge might be possessed by one in the habit of cutting up animals. I think the perpetrator of this act had sufficient time. It would take at least five minutes. I believe it was the act of one person, end quote. I always wonder how they time things like it would take at least five minutes to do that whole thing. I don't know. It seems like it would take you longer to get through the body, cut into it, move organs around so that you could get to what you're looking for and get that dissected out quickly. I don't know. Well, I said the knife was incredibly sharp in the case. So the police disagreed as to whether the killer was highly skilled with anatomical knowledge. At about 3 a.m. on the same day as Eddowes was murdered, a blood-stained fragment of her apron with fecal matter was found in the doorway leading to flats 108 and 119, model dwellings, Goulston Street, Whitechapel. Above it on the wall was a graffiti written in chalk that read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. And they spell that J-U-W-E-S. The writing may or may not have been related to the murder, but either way, it was washed away before dawn on the orders of Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Charles Warren, who feared that it would spark anti-Jewish riots. On October 1st, a postcard that was called the Saucy Jackie postcard and signed Jack the Ripper was received by the Central News Agency. It claimed responsibility for Strides and Edo's murders and described the killing of the two women as the double event. Since the postcard was mailed before the murders were public, the letter is thought to be legitimate but the postmark was more than 24 hours after the killings took place, long after details were known by journalists and residents of the area. And so police think a journalist wrote the letter as a hoax, and many historians today believe the same thing. Then there was the From Hell letter that came with the parcel on October 16, 1888. 
Inside the parcel was half a human kidney. The writer claimed to have fried and ate the missing kidney half. The handwriting and style were unlike that of the Saucy Jackie postcard. So it looks like we just have one time that he decided to taunt the police with what he had done. It does make you wonder, did he actually eat the other half of the kidney or was he just trying to see how gross he could be about it? Yeah. Mary Kelly was the Ripper's last victim. She was known by a variety of aliases from Fair Emma to Marie Kelly to Ginger to Black Mary. It's believed she was born in 1863, but the details of her life are little known. She'd lived with a man named Joseph Barnett before her death. Around 1879 is when it's thought that Kelly started prostitution. Most reports of Kelly claim that she was a pretty woman and liked to sing when she was drunk, but she could get abusive after drinking too. A woman who lived near Kelly reported on the night of her murder that Kelly came home with a stout ginger-haired man who was wearing a bowler hat. She went out again around 2 a.m. Her body was found on the morning of November 9th by a man working for her landlord who was trying to collect her rent that she was six weeks late on paying. When Kelly didn't answer the door, he looked through the window and saw Kelly's mutilated body. The scene was horrific. The Ripper had a lot of time with the body since they were inside her room, and he took full advantage. Dr. Thomas Bond wrote of the scene, The body was laying naked in the middle of the bed. The shoulders flat, but the access of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body, with the forearm flexed at a right angle and laying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent. The forearm supine with the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart. The left thigh at a right angle to the trunk and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubis. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts. The uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed and in line with the neck was marked by blood, which had struck it in several places. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features. The neck was cut through the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct ecchymosis. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx through the cricoid cartilage. Both breasts were more or less removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the fourth, fifth, and sixth ribs were cut through, and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the costal arch to the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front to the bone, the flap of skin including the external organs of the generation and part of the right buttocks. The left thigh was stripped of skin fascia and muscles as far as the knee. The left calf showed a long gash through skin and tissues to the deep muscles and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small superficial incision about one inch long, with extravasation of blood in the skin and there were several abrasions on the back of the hand, moreover, showing the same condition. 
On opening the thorax, it was found that the right lung was minimally adherent by old firm adhesions. The lower part of the lung was broken and torn away. The left lung was intact. It was adherent at the apex, and there were few adhesions over the side. In the substances of the lung, there were several nodules of consolidation. The pericardium was open below and the heart absent. In the abdominal cavity, there was some partly digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. The work took about two hours. The murder was linked to the four previous victims. Those suspected of being Jack the Ripper are numerous, numbering in the hundreds. There were many arrests made during the investigation, but no one has ever been convicted of the crimes, and theories as to who committed the crimes continues today, with libraries full of books focusing on various characters that seem to meet the qualifications to be Jack the Ripper. Men who were arrested included a ship's cook named William Henry Piggott, who was detained after being found in possession of a bloodstained shirt and making misogynist remarks. He was cleared. Swiss butcher Jacob Eisenschmidt matched the description of a bloodstained man seen acting strangely, and he had a distinctive ginger mustache and a history of mental illness. He was locked up in an asylum. German hairdresser Charles Ludwig was arrested after he attacked a prostitute and then tried to stab a man at a coffee stall. Both Eisenschmidt and Ludwig were exonerated after another murder was committed while they were in custody. Other suspects included Friedrich Schumacher, peddler Edward McKenna, apothecary and mental patient Oswald Puckridge, and medical student John Sanders. No evidence was found against any of these men. Edward Stanley was another suspect who was dropped after his alibis for the nights of two of the murders were confirmed. Mary Kelly's boyfriend, Joe Burnett, was questioned about her murder and the police thought maybe he had killed her in a rage. He was exonerated. Other suspects included George Chapman, Dr. Francis Tumbleteen, Michael Ostrog, and James Maybrick, Walter Sickert, Charles Cross, Montague John Druitt, Thomas Cutbush, and Aaron Kosminski. Some outlandish suspects included Prince Albert Edward Victor, Lewis Carroll, the Freemasons, Dr. Bernardo, and more recently, H.H. Holmes, which was a theory made more known by the recent TV show American Ripper. Author Patricia Cornwall believes Walter Sickert was the Ripper. Many of the suspects have viable reasons for being Jack the Ripper. In 2014, mitochondrial DNA that matched one of Edo's descendants was extracted from a shawl said to have come from the scene of her murder. The DNA match was based on one of seven small segments taken from the hypervariable regions. The DNA was said to be uncommon with a 1 in 290,000 frequency worldwide. But many people pointed out that there were errors. Other DNA on the shawl matched DNA from a relation to Aaron Kosminski, one of the suspects. This match is also questionable, and many have said that there's no evidence that the shawl was Edo's at all. This shawl has been handled by so many people, Kelly, that, you know, through all these years, how could you even trust any claims about it? There's no chain of custody. We don't know for sure that it was hers. Yeah, definitely not. It makes it very questionable. But for me personally, a lot of the stuff that I've heard about this Aaron Kosminski, I think that him being the Ripper is very plausible. We'll just never know. If only the spirits could tell us, because many of the victims still seem to have an afterlife here. And it really is no surprise after what some of them went through. Definitely. You kind of hope that their spirits weren't hanging out with the dead body while this kind of desecration was being done to it. Oh, good grief. I hope not. <laughs> Marianne Polly Nichols is said to haunt the place where her body was found on today's Derwood Street. The ghostly sounds of murder and muffled cries have been heard. 
The apparition of a body has been seen laying in the gutter where Polly was found, and many have claimed that it has an ethereal gray or green color to it. These reports started as early as 1895. Horses and dogs have shied away from the spot. A man was photographing the area when he heard a man and woman coming up on him. He turned and stepped aside, only to find that no one was near him. The house in which Annie Chapman was slaughtered was demolished in the 1970s, and the Truman Brewery was built in its place. In the 1930s, when the house still stood, people claimed to hear the sounds of Annie being murdered in the backyard of the house. A resident said he heard the disembodied gasps of breath of a woman, and this was heard along with a male breathing heavily and the sounds of a knife plunging into something. Then there were the sounds of a body being dragged as though the murderer were replaying invisibly. More terrifying are the reports of a headless figure sitting in the backyard, and Annie's ghost has been seen walking down Hanbury Street and then stopping at number 29. Occasionally, a shadowy male figure accompanies her. As we said, the site of the murder is now occupied by the former Truman Brewery building, and employees there claim that on the anniversary of Annie's murder, September 8th, the brewery's boardroom would become icy cold. wonder if that's where her room had been or something. It's possible. The place where Elizabeth Stride was murdered is not very active. The gates of a school are located there now, and there have been no complaints about unexplained activity. But this was not always the case. In the months after Stride's murder, people claimed to hear the ghostly sounds of a woman who seemed to be struggling against something, and they had even heard her cry out. The body of Catherine Eddowes lies beneath a plaque that claims her as a victim of Jack the Ripper. Her body had been found on the northwest corner of Mitre Square, and legend claims that on the anniversary of her death on September 30th, the cobblestones in this corner glow red. A more common occurrence that continues today is that people see her partly transparent body lying where it had been left after her murder, and the mutilations can clearly be seen. A medical student had thought he was seeing a bundle of clothes in the square when he was walking home. The bundle moved slightly, and he thought it might be a person in distress. He realized he was looking at a woman as he got close, and just as he reached to touch her, she vanished. A young couple saw a shadowy figure running away from what they thought was a pile of rubbish. They walked over to the pile and recognized it as a woman, and again, the body disappeared. Leonard Matters wrote the book, The Mystery of Jack the Ripper, in 1928. He visited Duval Street, which had formerly been Dorset Street, and he found an elderly man who had been a boy when the Whitechapel murders took place. He pointed out the house where Mary Kelly had been killed and said, That's the house. They say it's haunted, but I never see nobody coming out of it at nights. That was pretty good. Uh, I think you did all right with your accent. (laughs) Too tired to do accents. (laughs) Through his research, Matters found stories from several witnesses who claimed to have met Mary Kelly several hours after doctors stated she had been murdered. This has caused some to speculate that the ghost of Mary Kelly was walking the streets of Spitalfields just hours after her death. A witness named Carolyn Maxwell claimed to have had a conversation with Mary at 8 a.m. the morning after her murder. She had mentioned to Mary that she looked unwell, and Mary said that she did in fact feel sick. The flat where Kelly was murdered was covered in blood, and this blood seemed to leak through the paint after the room was relit. One woman claimed that a bloody handprint on the wall would reappear after the wall was painted over. Her apparition has been seen over the decades walking in the area, clad in black. There are other hauntings in Whitechapel, too. The Ten Bells Pub is an infamous landmark in Whitechapel that has been around since the 1740s. It's located at the corner of Commercial and Fournier Streets. Many of Jack the Ripper's victims drank at the pub and were seen there shortly before their murders. People report having many unexplained experiences here. The apparition of an old man dressed in period clothing has been seen. 
The pub's upper floors are rented out, and tenants have complained of being awakened by the phantom of an old man. He's usually lying next to them in bed. Yeah, that would not do well for me. Yeah, definitely not. People also claim to have been pushed by something they can't see when on the stairs. The Jack the Ripper tour website writes, and we definitely need to do that if we ever make it over there. Although the descriptions were always similar, nobody could pinpoint the man's identity. However, in 2000, a new landlord arrived. While clearing out the cellar, he found an old box hidden in a corner. The box contained items belonging to a certain George Roberts, including a wallet containing a 1900s press cutting, talking about Roberts' murder. After further research, he found that Roberts had been the landlord of the pub around this time. Was it his ghost the staff kept seeing? On Durward Street, where Mary Ann Nichols' body was found, a man went into a warehouse in December of 1974, and he saw the ghost of a young boy dangling from a rope that was tied to a ceiling hook. The building had once been a boarding school. It no longer exists, having been demolished. There is the old Bass sales office on Cephas Street that had once been a doctor's surgery and is now an office building. In 1980, employees in the building complained about smelling embalming fluid and experiencing severely cold spots. The Royal London Hospital on Whitechapel features a gray lady who walks the hallways. The legend here claims that if the shutters are not closed at night, a death will follow. There is an eerie oddity here as well. The elephant man's mounted skeleton is kept here at the medical school. I did not know that they had mounted his skeleton. That just seems so... I didn't either. I don't know. Weird to me. I I love skeletons and everything, but the man already went through so much in his life than to have to have that afterlife. Feels a little bit disrespectful, although I'm sure many people learn. Yeah, by looking at it. Yeah. It definitely would be a learning experience. The Tower of London is found in Whitechapel, too. Check out episode 152 for more as we featured it on that episode. Are these locations in Whitechapel still harboring spirits from the past? Could some of these ghosts be victims of Jack the Ripper? That is for you to decide. So, Kelly, I don't know how much you've looked into Jack the Ripper. Do you have any theories as to who you think the man was? I really don't. You know, every time that I'm watching a documentary or or what have you on the, the murders, I kind of changed my mind from here to there. So, yeah. I've always found it interesting when I hear the theory about H.H. Holmes from his, I don't know, his great-great-grandson or something like that. that Right. The timing seems to fit, and obviously he was kind of a sick man, but I never thought that H.H. Holmes murdered people specifically just to murder people. I always thought he just did it for money. Right. So I'd find it hard to believe that he'd go over to London and commit these heinous crimes just for the... Just for something in giggles yeah and i think when i looked into aaron kaminsky he really didn't like women he had a lot of issues there i mean this is clearly someone who hated women right and also seemed to have some kind of fascination or ritual connected to body parts because he definitely was dissecting and that kind of thing. absolutely very graphically we'd love to hear who you guys think jack the ripper might have been definitely And if any of you have been on the Jack the Ripper tour, we'd love to hear about that, too. Oh, most definitely. (laughs) Love to have you check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We got a message from Veronica over on Patreon. So you guys can reach us in a variety of ways for sure. We're going to be welcoming her into the graveyard in just a moment. She'd written, hi, I'm a brand new patron and have loved your podcast for years, especially since I can listen to it with my three-year-old daughter holy cow who also loves all things spooky without fear of language 
That's awesome. So this is definitely by our far youngest. our youngest <laughs> listener. We are down to three years old. I don't think we can get any lower than that. So there's the record. I wish we knew her name so we could mention it. <laughs> so yeah. She's listening. Uh, and then All Veronica that. went on basically her main reason for writing is because she was like, I'm not sure if you'd given me a shout out on the last episode because the last name was different than mine. She goes, so she wanted to verify what her last name was. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe because, you know, sometimes when people's emails come through or something, it has their maiden name or something like that. So I went back and looked at the records. And I was like, no, how unusual we had a Veronica who signed up the week before. So it's not a very common name. And that's even what she said. She said, how weird is that? I'm so used to having an uncommon name. It didn't even cross my mind that somebody else <laughs> signed up in the same, basically within a week of each other. Right. So I just thought that was really cool that we had two Veronicas within a week of each other. And then one of them has a three-year-old daughter who's tuning in. It's awesome. Clearly not to this episode. but <laughs> Yeah, that's actually what I was just going to mention, that we could mention her name if we knew it, but this wouldn't be a good episode for that. <laughs> no, no, we'd have to mention on a different one. So let us know her name, Veronica, and we'll give her a shout out. We want to thank you all for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. First, we want to thank Shelby Rickard for increasing your donation. You are going to be moved into a garden tomb, and that means in three months you're going to have a logo mug coming out to you as well. And then brand new into the cemetery, we have Veronica Rodriguez, who we just mentioned. You're going to be buried under an obelisk tombstone. And Stephanie Valiant and Caitlin Curry. Welcome back to you, Caitlin. Both of you are going to be buried under chest tombs. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump, you guys. You really do help bring the episodes to everyone else. So very much appreciated. Sweet dreams. month of october on the 30s on the 30th <laughs> that's a new one the 30 and the explosion it created shot a ball of fire up through the south side south side she, 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 she. most of them were murdered in a 31 day time frame that abruptly ended really mm-hmm. tell me more that's what i that's what exactly <laughs> what happened okay most of them were murdered in a 31-day time frame that abruptly ended. No one knows for sh- no one <laughs> sure 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 sure. <laughs> no one knows for sure why there was an abrupt end. I can't do abrupt and end together. Single people would be crammed into large rooms with only around. Huh? Where did it only come from? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Kelly. You're just making up words as you go. I guess I'm good at that. Prostitution was often the only choice for women, and during the Victorian period, around 12,000 
12,000 prostitutes <laughs> in Whitechapel. Man, those streets were, they just were crammed full of them. Holy cow. You could get one, not on every corner, like every single square of sidewalk. Stop it. She had married William Nichols in 1964. And 1964. They had- <laughs> wow. She jumped forward a whole hundred years. This is amazing. Jack Ripper went forward in time, killed her, and then came back. The murder had happened so close to her discovery by Louis Diemschmutz. Nope. <laughs> Diemschmutz? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Mary Kelly's boyfriend, jo- John, Joe... It's a J name. Well, whatever. Just call him whatever you want. Kelly. It doesn't matter. <sighs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> we do it together. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.